thank you. Um, I just feel so privileged that I'm here today, and uh, we may have some more people coming, but that's fine. Um, I think it's just wonderful that we have this program here at the Enoch Pratt new, brand new Reisterstown Road Library. It's gorgeous, and uh, I know this library well because I used to, my parents lived down on Menlo Drive, and um, I used to come here quite often. And also, uh, I work with the uh, Baltimore City Department of Recreation and Parks Senior Division um, with Miss Joanne Kaysen, who I would say really spearheaded this program. And one of the women who you've seen several times, Miss Coger, um, Pat Coger, was the inspiration behind this program and introduced me to so many individuals in the community, and some of them are here today. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm Harriet Lynn, and I, um, uh, my history, just briefly, goes back to when my father played tennis incessantly, and when I was a little girl, what did I do? I came out every Sunday, practically, to watch my father play. Usually, I'd get bored, because I wasn't playing, and um, I would go into the conservatory, and uh, that was my, my place to go. But I was very, very well aware of the clay courts, which are no longer there. And I didn't know as a child that they were not, that African Americans were not permitted to play on that court, which would, was a, is a shocking thing to hear. And so a few years ago, 2008, I believe, um, there was an anniversary 60th anniversary of this program that um, where there was a sit-in, pre-sit-ins at Reed's, a sit-in that um, came because it, was, it seemed to be foolish that people couldn't all play on the courts themselves. And so um, some very brave people got together, and they went out there, and um, they were actually... Um, hauled off and taken to jail for playing tennis together. Horrific. And so with this um, breakthrough, it took a number of more years into the 50s. Exactly what year? I do not know, but it was um, somewhere mid-50s. If anyone knows the exact date, I'd love to know because I never could pin that down. But one day, both the courts and the swimming pool were available for everyone to enjoy. But our concentration here is the tennis program. So when they had this this wonderful reenactment at Drude Hill Park, and um, they had some of the people there, it was a big to-do, um, some of the people weren't represented there that day. And that's where I, this program got started, because Pat Coger was very, very adamant that there were some extraordinary people who were part of this movement, and I had the privilege, I was asked to do the interviews, oral history interviews, with each of the, aren't they handsome men, aren't they gorgeous, I'm telling you, could they dress, Woo! so um, I had the privilege of going into meeting all of these wonderful people, this was in Mr. Junkie Woods, I love to say Junkie Woods, I can't help it, Mr. Woods, 
Junkie Woods, um, um, his wife's home. He's now passed, unfortunately. And we'll hear from her in the documentary that I put together of these interviews. Each each person I interviewed for an hour or so. And then we have clips that are of a documentary. And uh, I just um, also learned things like in 1917, goes back a while, doesn't it? Drude Hill Park was the first national tournament for the um, American Association of Tennis, Tennis Association, that were for, was for African Americans. It was founded in 1916 in Washington, D.C. And a very famous woman, her name was Miss Slow, Lucy Slow, I believe it is. Lucy was an amazing woman. Not only was she the first African American woman to win in a tennis, in a athletic national program. Hello, Mr. Bowser. I hope you weren't lost. One of our wonderful gentlemen who was a tennis pioneer just came here today. And, um, we're just getting started. So take, take your time. So, um, it was uh, she not only was a tennis um, uh, star in her own right. She uh, taught in Baltimore City at Frederick Douglass, where we're going to hear a lot about Frederick Douglass, I think, as part of tennis. But she also went on and was the dean of women at Howard, and she was one of the founders of um, Alpha Kappa Alpha, uh, a sorority. And uh, this past year, I saw her. Uh, was uh, uh, the word got out about her that why hasn't she been recognized more? And so she was now recognized through the Maryland Women's Commission of Fame in Annapolis. So her she's recognized forever, so to speak. We all know about Miss Slow. I wanted to say that, but this goes back to 1917. And we said, well, where did they play on the courts? If everybody couldn't play together, uh, they they didn't build the um, courts for only black tennis players to play, which is in, do you know where that is, that location where the, the pool is, which doesn't exist anymore, in, except you can see mysteriously the things to go down into the pool. It's all grass now. It's very strange. But right next to that, and today that is a very well-used, um, oh, isn't that sweet? That's Ann Coger's niece, I believe. Isn't she adorable? Um so we have up-and-coming tennis players today, and because of our tennis pioneers, this gentleman here um, was our keynote speaker, and he worked with the Arthur Ashe Foundation. Arthur Ashe was one of the players in Drude Hill Park as a young man, and um, there was an amazing story I heard about Arthur Ashe from this gentleman. What is his name? I forgot all of a sudden, and he's really very important Mr. Davis, Bob Davis, and he was saying that Arthur Ashe didn't have the money. He was concerned, and he was in California, and he was invited to to play in, at Australia, which was the big match that, you know, kind of br- brought in to international celebrity. But at that point in time, he said he didn't have a um, – didn't have the money to go. I mean, that's a big trip, Right. And so this woman who had said, oh, I hear you're going. And he said, well, I don't think I can. She says, what do you mean? And he said it was a Jewish woman, which I was happy to hear. I'm being Jewish myself. And I was saying, how nice. Nobody knows these stories. She says, well, she takes out her bag. She writes a check. And she says, now you're going. 
And so she sponsored his trip to go, and you wouldn't know that. And there's a lot of stories we don't know, and that's why um, having this opportunity to hear some of the stories that were going on behind the scenes where people were playing together, and sometimes they weren't. But it was illegal. It, it was, you know, if a white person wanted to play with a black person, that was wrong. You see? It's crazy, isn't it? It's just crazy. I remember, this isn't tennis, but I'll just share a story about my mother. She grew up here in Baltimore, and then she went down to Richmond, and she was a little girl, must have been in the 30s or something. And she didn't know except to be respectful for elders, and she's on the streetcar, and she gets up for this elderly black woman to sit down, and she's near the front of the car, and the streetcar says, you can't do that. She says, well, you know, I'm just a young person. I want to give my seat. He says, no, you can't do that, and threw my mother off the tr- off the streetcar. I said, Mom, you were the first Rosa Parks. <laughs> I didn't know that. You know, because it was illegal, you see. But legally, the thing is about the parks, it wasn't really like on the books. It was just what was done. People could only play at the parks at certain times. African Americans only could play at certain times or have places to play on the parks. So this was our big, wonderful um, event that we had in September um, 2010, where we showed the documentary, and you can see some of the tennis rackets that people brought in, these great things that were, um, maybe some of you here donated some things for that day, because it was really very, very special. And uh, so these were all things that we're showing. And maybe we can show more of these afterwards, but I'd like to um, have um, our video uh, documentary shown now so we can have a chance to talk to all of our people afterwards. And here are some of our stars. So thank you. Becky's going to help us get together here. And afterwards, we're going to invite our panelists to come up, and and we're going to talk. So we're going to invite our um, panelists today, some of our tennis pioneers, to come up and uh, take a seat. And Mr. Wells, would you like to join us today, too? We'll put an extra chair for you. Nope, nope, not today. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Getting shy here. Oh, you're here, Rose. All right. Well, we're going to invite Ms. Jean Powell, who was on our who is certainly one of our heroines, and um, you saw her in the video, and who had a tremendous influence on tennis in Baltimore City when she was one of the top people in Baltimore City Recs and Parks and continues to work with young people. Am I correct? A little, little, but she's still very involved, and um, it's just been a pleasure. And I, how about Mr. Parham? How about you coming up here, Mr. Joseph Parham Sr., who you saw, who was n- not only on the tennis courts, but for many years in the classroom. And uh, we'll put you right here. How's that? Um, teaching French, am I correct? Spanish. Spanish. Oh, my gosh. And French. And French. Oh, see, I remembered the French. Okay. Forgive me. Okay. Spanish and French. I could have used you recently. Ah, uh, and we have now Mr. Leon Bowser, who was also you saw on the on the um, on the video today, and uh, Mr. Bowser brought some books. I see, fantastic, 
Oh, it's show and tell. I love this. And boy, does he have a lot to show and tell. Maybe you saw some of his incredible things up there. Um, we can turn this off now, can't we, Becky, and, and just uh, leave the lights on. And I'm going to put the... Um, I'm going to pretty much get out of the way here because I think it's we have an intimate group here, and we're so glad you came about the coldest day yet we've had, right? And um, I'm just going to put the um, this on the table so that you can pick up and speak and share. And um, we might start off with some questions that some of you may have out here that either that didn't come up on the... Um, that came up on the video or that didn't come up. But here's your opportunity now to ask how it really was. Yes, absolutely. That's that's the whole point. Before we get started, I think it's appropriate that we give Harriet Lynn a hand for the job that she did for this program. We could not go necessarily into the schools without the school's permission. Um, but one of the things that we did do, we used the courts at uh, the public, and by the same token, we used tennis courts. Now, in East Baltimore, Mr. Wells is one of the people who taught for us, and he was at Madison Square Recreation Center at the time, I think, and he taught tennis there. And we had a program where it only took us about three minutes to put up a tennis net on a school blacktop. And then we could teach. So we had it approximately two hours at each one of the courts that we had gotten permission to use from the Baltimore Public School Systems. So we did, we did, we, we spread out as much as we could, but we just could not go into the schools and tell phys ed people what they should do. But we felt, or I felt very strongly that uh, young people, and especially young black people, needed to participate in individual sports because we find that most black uh, Americans, especially boys, want to play basketball. That's their way to get out of the projects, to get out of whatever community they are and where they can make big money. But you got to remember, it takes 11 players to play football. Tennis, you can make the same kind of money. Uh, swimming, if you know uh, our own, um, what's his name? The swimmer. Michael Phelps, our own Michael Phelps, is making big money. He's doing it by himself. You don't need a team to help you to do these kinds of things. And so these were the things that we in the recreation department were trying to explore when when we were workers then. Um, so I regret that you didn't get more, but uh, we tried. Speaking of getting to the courts, I live closer to southwest Baltimore, and the only way I could get there was riding the streetcar. And that's at least a half hour ride. So I got on that uh, court, I mean on that uh, bus and rode to Drew Hill Park and see if I could find a space on the two hard courts and the two trodden clay courts, the which were very seldom kept up. So that means everybody was fighting to get on the two hard service courts. So that you, had, you had to wait your turn. And for us beginners, we had to wait until the Babe Jones and Reggie and them had their play because they were the more advanced players. And by the time they finished, we were able to get on a little time before it got dark. Because most of the time, I seemed to have gotten there in the afternoon or evening. So the time was very short for me to get on the tennis court. Uh, I was 
first of all, I want to say, I, I, every time I come to one of these, I, I get, I get kind of uh, filled up because uh, I'm hearing things that uh, I haven't heard before, and uh, and you know, experiencing memories. Uh, one of the things that you were talking about are uh, getting to the courts by walking, uh, and one of the reasons I. My way of getting on the court was basically stay all day. <laughs> and so my mother would fix a little little bag, a little uh, brown bag, and uh, I had the racket from the school, and uh, and I had my racket. And so I'd go marching, you know, out to the courts, and I'd play, and then I'd wait, and I'd play, and wait, and, and that was how pretty much I got on the court. But it was interesting hearing, you know, Baltimore's a, a city of neighborhoods, and uh and, and a lot of the things I'm learning about East Baltimore, for instance, I, I never knew because I never went to East Baltimore. And what what I knew there was grass up Broadway, and, and that's about all I knew about the grass on East Baltimore at the time. And South Baltimore was the same way. But uh, at that time, uh, in the neighborhood that I lived in, uh, Roost Street, 200 block, we had... Uh, a couple of vacant lots and a couple of blank walls, and I could hit on the wall. The neighbors were nice enough they didn't complain. And uh, as, after I started at Douglas uh, on the Babe, uh, I would go out there and hit on the wall. And then uh, when you walked, after a while in the neighborhood, they kind of knew what you, was your thing. Tennis was my thing. And that was your idiosyncrasy. I mean, that was your peculiar thing about you is you played tennis all the time. So, uh, but there was encouragement, and uh, people in the neighborhood were happy to hear when you, especially if you got, if you made the afro, <laughs> when when you had uh, won a tournament or something, and uh, so that that that's how it started. And uh, I always think about this cycle, you know, of uh, people who were like the principals and the teachers, like taught us other things uh, other than tennis by example. For example, uh, Reggie Watts ran a, re- a mean tournament, strict by the rules. You got defaulted if you weren't on time, and, and if you had any complaints about the seating, see Reggie, and he'd let you know you didn't, he wasn't going to change it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, Now, Babe was uh, a large fellow, but uh, he had this unique way of being quiet and firm. I don't think I ever saw him argue, but he played doubles with Reggie, who was a little short guy, about five foot two or three, who was uh, like a little Napoleon principal, <laughs> school principal. And uh, so uh, while they played, Reggie was would be uh, lecturing to Babe about the strategy and so forth and so on, and Babe's would be hitting almost all the winners, but uh, he would never say a word. And a junkie played with uh, with uh, with Reggie as well, and uh, so we learned just by observing how they dressed, how they respected the game and the rules, and uh, even some of them who had sort of unorthodox strokes. How you could take the strokes that you had and use your head. Like junkie, he hit a lot of chops, and he had a backhand overhead that would turn the racket inside out like that and hit. 
and then laugh. But uh, we we would watch them uh, a lot, and the spirit of helping youngsters was was just so contagious. Uh, they would uh, Ann Colgan, Pat, and uh, some of the others they named uh, when they were promising juniors. The club would take out of the club's treasury money to send them to tournaments, and uh, in some cases pay for their lessons with Schwartzman, who was the leading tennis pro in the, at the time in the area. And nobody thought anything of it. And that spirit, be, partly be, because of uh, segregation, if you had a kid and you, want, you wanted to go to another city, there's a, like a fraternity, a sorority, whatever you want to call it, there's a camaraderie, and you just call up somebody and they would look after your kid. And sometimes it was kind of funny because uh, I carried that spirit with me after I graduated from Morgan and went out to play in the Midwest. And, and when I would come back east, they would, uh, Midwestern families would send, parents would send their children for me to look after. Well, I was single at the time, so uh, sometimes they'd send a teenage girl, 14 or 15. <laughs> And I'd have to beg somebody in the club to uh, to take over, you know, and that sort of thing. But they trusted uh, your good will, and, and and that was one of the good things that we learned out of this fellowship. And I guess I could go on, on examples of that. But even with uh, the today with the clubs, some tennis pe- people are pretty much strong-minded individualists a lot of the times, and everybody wants to be the leader a lot of the times, and yet. So different clubs sometimes form, and who's going to be uppermost and who's foremost and so forth. And Jean had to deal with all of that because she was everything had to come out, come through the parks and rec. And uh, I'd go down on Calvert <laughs> Street then when it was uh, Jean would be down there refereeing and keeping everybody satisfied and happy about <laughs> whatever was going to happen. And uh, see, Jean and I go way back. When we went to Douglas, we were both in the same homeroom class. We had a very close homeroom class. It was what was then called the A course or this accelerated program or something. But we were like, we weren't that tight with the rest of the kids in our school class, you know, for the whole 12th grade or 10th grade or 11th grade. But we were very close as a, as a class. And then we went to Morgan together, and she did... Um, wonderful things out there too but uh, so we go back we used to call her pint she used to be so tiny then and they used to call me pop and they didn't a lot of kids didn't even know our right name <laughs> some don't now <laughs> but uh, that, that was how a lot of that happened I was so uh, uh, excited to see how when these new clubs have started to form how they just like we did picked up the ball from the people who were ahead of us and uh, you name the kind of program and they have it now in, indoors and t- teaching and you know, tennis pros who came along and uh, and still uh, there's that spirit of passing the torch on although the obstacles aren't there I just the other day I was just watching uh, Stan Turner with his granddaughter she's developing to be a real pro prospect of the caliber of the Williams type. Uh, she has won the state championship when she was 10, I think 12 or 14. 
Uh, there's a little girl from Columbia named Jordan. I think she's the one in 18 and under. And I bought some props, but I don't want to go through all of them. But there's a magazine uh, called the Mid-Atlantic, uh, and that's the bottle of local tennis and all kinds of competitive activities. And, uh, she, she, you know, you, you can follow in you know, who's ranked and who is one of these tournaments and stuff. And you can pick them up at any of these tennis bubbles. They're free, and they sit right on it. So if you want to really see how it's changed and how many from the uh, African-American community have risen in ranking, standards, winning tournaments, coaching, being pros at the clubs. You look right in there, and it's, it's visual. You'll see that things have changed, and a lot of it had to do with just passing the current on the torch. One of, one of the things that Mr. Wells mentioned was Maurice Chalmers, and I think some of you said you knew him. He was one of the young people who learned how to play tennis under our jurisdiction, quote-unquote. And he got, he got a job with us in the Department of Recreation and Parks teaching other young children how to play tennis. So this is how lucrative that particular sport is. You could just, you know, if you learn, then you can take it on to someone else. In those days, we weren't paying a lot of money, but I think Chalmers was probably in, in college or whatever. And we gave him a job. He was good enough to teach younger kids who had no idea how to even hold a racket. So these were kind of some of the great things that came out of teaching an individual sport. We had the same thing with uh, swimming. We hired high school and college students to, to be our lifeguards uh, in our swimming pools. We had at one point 30-some swimming pools in the city, walk-to pools and then the big five park pools. And we hired about 300 young people every summer. And so because they learned how to swim through us, and, of course, the Red Cross Department, um, they were able to get jobs. And it was pretty good money in the summertime for those kids. They had enough money to go back to school. Some of them had enough to go back to college with. So these were the good things that happened out of these individual sports uh, that we were trying to work with young people with. One, before we answer your question, one other thing about helping people, uh, the youngsters in tennis, the Netman Coeck uh, Tennis Club worked closely with Doc Johnson from the South, who had all these good students like Ash and what have you. Whenever we had our tournaments and the youngsters came up, they were housed in our uh, members' houses. I housed at least two or three people almost every year in which we had a tournament, and if students came, and the tennis player come up, came up, they were in our house until the tournament was over, and we took care of them, fed them, and made sure they got to the tournament, and sent them home carefully when it was over. That was very important for those tournaments, to have the youngsters playing and having a safe place to stay without having to spend a lot of money. That was very important. The young lady had a hand up. Baltimore City did not charge admission initially for swimming pools, but during the time that I was in charge of the pools, we had a new director who decided that we were going to charge. But, uh, but the, park, the parks and recreation yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. No, it was parks and recreation. We hired all of those. We had a budget. We had something like a quarter of a million dollars for just a swimming pool budget in the summertime, which hired all the lifeguards and all of the attendance in the uh, locker rooms. Well, is it, is it, 
No, that was a private club. And, and, yes. and when the Department of Recreation, when we were able to get indoors, uh, we paid for court time because we got the money from the federal government through a grant. We paid for court time in, I think the first one was Twin Lakes. And I went to the Baltimore Netmans and asked them if they would come and teach the children because we couldn't afford to pay them. We were, just, we were paying for court time. So these ladies and gentlemen came out. Uh, I think we had about eight courts. And they came out and helped uh, the children learn how to play on those indoor courts. Out of your pocket. <laughs> yes, well, we were adults by then. We were adults. We weren't. We weren't young. So we were adults, and we were working. And tournaments were held during the summer only. Now, not all the year round. During the summer when, and as teachers, and myself, I had the summer off, therefore I could travel if I saved up my money. And everything, there, there are places where we stay and we took the kids, we paid for their lodging and the hotels, we paid for their entrance into the tournament, came out of our pockets because we want to see tennis prosper. It was important to us. Uh, I think I mentioned we were able to put up a tennis net in about three minutes. Um, what we had was uh, Pepsi Cola sponsored this program. We had two trucks that we would pick up every morning at Pepsi, and we had rackets on there. We paid for the rackets, I think. We paid for the no. We got the balls from uh, indoor tennis clubs, uh, country clubs. So we had balls and rackets on each truck. We had. A driver, an instructor, two adults, and one young person who was on there on the truck with them. The young person was responsible for giving out rackets to the children. Each racket had a number on the handle, the top of the handle. So we would get those back at the end of the day. They would put up the net, stay there for two hours, work with the group that we had there, take the net up, put the rackets back on the truck, the balls on the truck, and go to the second place. We did two places a day. And these were on public school uh, blacktops. They didn't necessarily have courts, but every almost every school, elementary, junior, senior high school, has a blacktop area somewhere. So we got permission from the schools to use these blacktop areas. And so the, the uh, custodial people would, of course, have to sweep the glass off almost every morning. It was terrible. And then Pepsi gave us all the over cans that had over or under the amount of soda that it should have in it which meant that when the children finished playing at their particular area, they got a little six-pack of soda every day. So I think that helped them That helped them to come out every day. But here again, it was an, a good job. Like I said, we had adults on there, but we also had one young person on there who also uh, helped. And that young person really learned how to play tennis just because they were hanging out like you guys hung out when you were young with people. They learned how to play tennis. So that's where the Pepsi, and I think that lasted about three years, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know we have a lot of broad areas to talk about, but you know there is also, especially recently, uh, tennis camps conducted by Department of Rex uh, in, in Druid Hill Park. Uh, sometimes it's, I've seen as many as 150, 200 kids, and there's. Helping kids and training kids and teaching kids is, is ongoing because you'll see them marching like a whole line of them going over to get lunch and get tutoring or get uh, uh, 
other day camp type activities in addition to the tennis. And the beauty of it is that they're able to uh, charge them such a small fee that nobody would, would babysit kids all day long for that amount anyway. But uh, that's you know, another area. A uh, lot of the kids come up in the program and, like I said, observing and being around or caring adults and competent t teachers become themselves pros. We had at least six, if you look in here, you'll see maybe at least six certified professional teaching pros at the clubs around the city. George Martin over at uh, Hilton and, and uh, up the street down around the corner, uh, Twin Lakes, uh, John Skinner, whose grandson just won the Open Championships of all of Baltimore. Uh, then uh, there's these uh, programs like Baltimore Tennis Patrons. A lot of us have volunteered or have hooked up with that on a part-time pay basis, which is all over Maryland, really, but mostly in the Baltimore County area. Uh, Ron Scott has been in that for years. And uh, Jonathan uh, has Green has a program teaching the youngsters, and so uh, you know it just goes on one generation going on t to the next. Take a guy like this, he excuse me, he's been an official for official tournament play for USTA. His name is uh, Ernie Mosley. If you look on television, you'll see Ernie Mosley anytime at the Grand Slams all over the world. And he's out of this area. Mm. Uh, there, 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 there are different avenues where people go on and ex, you know excel in the tennis world. Uh, leaving here, we don't have an Arthur Ashe out of Baltimore, unfortunately. But uh, we have. He came here often enough. He came here often, and Althea came here. And I didn't boss anybody. Uh, Hines would handle. Rick would handle the the junior development. Uh, Hobson would handle the finances and money and getting contributions from Coca-Cola and, and all, all that sort of thing. And yet, uh, you know, they were helping me to learn how to be a, a community leader. You cut back on some of the obesity. Tennis is good for you up until 90s and 95s. I'm still playing tennis. I will be tur turning 85 in a couple of weeks. I, I play mostly doubles, but when I'm forced to, I will play singles. <laughs> and uh, I'll determine, to show you how determined I am, I've had two knee replacements. Two. I used to, if, when I first started wearing, I had knee trouble. I had a uh, thing on my left leg. That here he comes with that thing on his leg. He's fooling everybody, pretending he can't play. And then I played so hard, I was able to beat them. And then, I, uh, then the other knee started acting up. And I said, I, I want to play tennis. I'm not going to get off this tennis court. I went and got another operation. And here's another funny story. When I went back to my doctor, he says, have you been on the course yet? I said, did you tell me I could? He said, no, well, I'm not going back until you tell me, because when I go back, I want to be able to play, because I know I'm getting knocked off the court right away because I came back too soon. So that's why I'm still playing.